Hey, y'all. Before we jump into the show, we're trying to see how impactful this project is for the community, and we need to hear from you in order to find out. We've created a short anonymous survey, and for a limited time, we're offering a $10 incentive to collect your feedback. Check out our website at TwinCitiesActivismAnd.com to help us out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Activism And, the podcast where we take a look at how activism can intersect with the ways we live, work, and imagine here in the Twin Cities. We find ourselves at the crossroads, again and again at this crossroads. Podcasting justice is to juxtapose what we see with what we know. It's Activism And. This episode will focus on activism and life after incarceration with Russell Ballinger and David T. Starks. So we have Russell Ballinger and David Starks with us here today. Beyond that, we want to learn a little more about who they are. And so we're going to just start out with the first question. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you be, where do you rep, and what should we know about you? Russell? I'm Russ Ballinger. I was um, born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've lived many other places and always end up back here. Um, I'm married, have three kids, 23 grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren. Um, my first five grandchildren ran into trouble with the law and with the statistics being what they were, I knew I had to get involved. David. So my name is David Starks, South Minneapolis, 46 in Portland. Uh, that's, that's what I rep. I am 52 years old, proud father of a baddies girl that will be 30 years old in a week and a half, and an uncle to a million. Uh, and my first, I'm a person who had a lot of interactions with the law and, and uh, some good, some bad. And I think I was 23 years old when I came home from the workhouse and went to my nephew's basketball game, who was 11 years old, and realized. Uh, that they all, his team had an opportunity in front of them and I invested the next 15, 20 years of my life into every and everything they needed, uh, advocating um, in, in just everything, just being there for them all the time. Uh, later on in life, went back to school, late in life, went back to school. In my third semester, got arrested for uh, possession of a kilo of cocaine with intent to distribute and ended up getting indicted a year later and then self-surrendering to the Bureau of Prisons four days after I completed my bachelor's degree. And second to the last semester, I did an internship with Russell Ballinger after twice visiting the Circle of Peace and then calling Russell one day and say, hey, Russell, I need to, I, I want to do an internship and told him what I had a uh, self-designed degree and program designed to alleviate adverse childhood experiences through protective factor development. And Russ said, I like the sound of that. So he invited me in and uh, one day he, he told me to go to the Minnesota Historical Library to track down a picture. And I didn't find that picture until I actually got in prison. Uh, but I, I found a whole lot of things about juvenile incarceration in Minnesota, hunting for a picture that I, that I never found there. So that's who I am, uh, is, is Proud person from the South Side, happy to spend my my collegiate years on this side of the river under under the two the tutelage of Mr. Ballinger. Uh, learned a lot and, and look at him as a, as a mentor who I love. So. That's dope. You all background us is so so dope. Wow, and I'm I'm so happy that you are in the place that you are now. Um, but I wanted to to check in with um, what, what what we all sometimes call Uncle Russ to see how he decided to start the Circle of Peace. And can you tell us about your process? Yeah, um, 
actually a, a, a long time ago, my sons got into, um, uh, we're having a problem with some of the uh, other young people in the, in the neighborhood and it was kind of getting out of hand. And, um, and because I'm born and raised here, I was able to go to the parents of those kids and let them know that we needed to have a talk with our children to bring an end to what was happening and work like a charm. But um, in 2010, it was um, February and the snow was starting to melt a little bit and I was in a, a, a boardroom in a meeting and I realized that the shooting would start again. And my oldest grandson had been shot twice previous to that. And um, I just didn't feel that it was, that I could just sit back and see something, anything more happen. Um, so I went back to um, the ideal that I would bring these, uh, families together. Of course, I didn't know any of the folks that it was a gang involved and I didn't know any of those people, but I went around to each person. I went first to my grandson's mother who played mom, and but she slipped and said a name that I recognized. And then I went to that family and they slipped and said a name. And I went and um, I was told by my employer at the time that it would take me a year to uh, bring together um, this ideal that I had and they wanted nothing to do with it and didn't want to offer me the time to pull it together. By the Monday of the next week, I pulled together families from six different gangs and asked them to come to dinner and they didn't want to come, uh, but I think it was because I was older than the rest that uh, I insisted that they come in and because I knew we would be going to a funeral if we didn't come sit together and have a meal together. Um, I went around to the churches in the community and everyone said they didn't want that type of thing to happen. I ended up over at Unity Church, which was a place that um, as a child, I would wander into and they were always welcoming and warm. And they did say, of course, Russ, take the center room. Do you need any food? And that was 11 years ago. And uh, that's still our home. We, um, I, I, was um, a very aware of restorative practices, always did circles prior to that. And so when the, the, these families came in and they started pointing at each other, your, your kid beat up my daughter, your kid shot up my house, that type of thing. We set some guidelines um, and uh, we, began, we began to talk. So, by the second week, people were owning up the, the issues. Maybe my kid is causing the police some problems. Maybe I could be a better grandfather. Um, maybe if we went to each other's houses, our kids would be less likely to shoot them up. Um, by the end of the third, the third week, and I asked for them to meet for four Mondays in a row. By the end of the third one, people were hugging each other goodbye. By the end of the fifth, the fourth, um, they said, we have to keep doing this. And now I can say that those grandchildren are up and grown and have children of their own. They have uh, a clothing store in Florida. They wrap and they open for an act in uh, a major arena. And 
it seemed like all it took was to get them out of Minnesota for them to be able to find their gifts and opportunities. So um, the job I had at the time wanted to take this community process and, um, and turn it into a program. And I didn't allow it. And I went on to build the Circle of Peace Movement. And I think I said we're 11 years old now. I put on a card when I left the other job, Russ Ballinger, Circle Keeper. My daughter took it. It was this little scrappy thing and she balled it up and she said, this is junk and made me a beautiful card. She's an artist and um, I love pulling it out. I guess that's, that's how it also got started. Marika, do you have chills? Are your eyes tearing up like mine? <laughs> what is the story that people need to hear? Because I think, I think, you know, oftentimes folks are afraid of actually bringing people together. And so the fact that you took it outside of an organization and said, this is for our family, this is for our community, and we're going to invest and pour into this to make sure that our young people <laughs> are able to leave the state of Minnesota if they so choose. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I really, that, that story is so powerful to me. Thank you. So what are your takeaways from a year of distance in a field where person-to-person -person can contact can be so vital? How have things changed um, in, in either of both of you all's roles during this, you know, pandemic where typically your work is, is really focused on being, you know, face-to-face? -face? And either of you can answer. Well, how about we start with you, David? Is that okay? Sure. Um... So for me, I, like I talked about being incarcerated and I came home, uh, I, let me say this here. I left uh, on, on the heels of Philando Castile and I came home a week before George Floyd was murdered. Um, so I came home and it, I wasn't all the way home. I was on an ankle bracelet for six months. I was on home confinement. Uh, I was looking forward, a couple of things I was looking forward to was church circle and uh, some mentors when I was in school. But I got lucky and, and got a job. Um, I, was, I, I wasn't allowed to even look for a job until after June 15th because of the way the pandemic was affecting the BOP. And I was still technically um, under the jurisdiction of the BOP, but I was allowed to. So, so I got a job. I got hired August 6th. And you said face to face. I actually got hired at face to face um, in downtown St. Paul, where I got at the Burner Safe Zone to work at that time. When I interviewed for a job, one of my nephews um, had told me about a position that was open just to grab to get out the house while I was on home confinement. I went and interviewed for, for a job, and the woman told me that there was um, two other jobs she had in mind. It had nothing to do with what I interviewed for. One of them is what I do now is a youth diversion uh, case manager. I get in partnership with Ramsey County Attorney's Office. I get referrals from young men, 17 and under, or young, I shouldn't say men only, but um, 17 and under, who have crimes potential crimes that could be charged, um, gun possession, but not discharged, and anything else with potential violence. So even though we're in the midst of a pandemic, it didn't affect me too much because the pandemic cleared the building out. I don't know what Safe Zone looks like in a normal operating thing, but I get to meet with uh, the young people at risk. Um, of course, Zoom to meet with judges and, and Ramsey County attorneys and things like that. But what I really, really miss most is the Circle of Peace and, and Russell. Um, we still have Circle, it's just via Zoom, quite different. Um, so it is, but one thing I talk about is being- Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Did you say you still meet with them during the pandemic in the building, like the work continued, but you just kind of practice? So, no, so I could have appointments here. So we're not mm -hmm. operating full capacity like normal with, with 70 and 80 people in the building, but I can have mm -hmm. social distances, about six employees on my floor. So I can have appointments here uh, and practice mm -hmm. social distancing and things like that. One thing I tell everybody, even coming out and everybody, like everything shut down. For me, I was incarcerated. So us shutting down, the free world operating at 15% was was wide open to me. It was compared to what I was doing. We were, we were in confinement during the pandemic in prison. So mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like what everybody else was calling shut down. I was like, it's open, wide open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, okay. okay. Some real quick sidetrack, just a rabbit hole, to take it out with you, Joe. But Russell, when you just talked about uh, your grandsons making it in Florida, uh, right before I went into prison, we had found an old book, The Minneapolis Negro Profile, and some young men from my neighborhood, we were talking about challenging all communities to do an updated version uh, edition with, with our neighborhood, right? Like 40 from the 40s, under 40 years old. But what we noticed was all of them had to go somewhere else to find success. And it's like, why can't, what is it about Minnesota where, where people can't flourish where they were nourished? Uh, so I just want to point that out when you said that, Russell, just something I was just thinking about. It's like, that's a sad thing. Everybody finds success somewhere else. I actually want to juxtapose the process that you actually used and the, the, the origin story of Circle of Peace, about how you brought those families together to what's happening right now in our community with the violence that we're seeing around. And that, you know, calling out more police is not the solution to that issue. Like this is a deeper rooted issue and, and we need more people that are willing and able to bring folks into space together like that, like 11 years ago or today. It's very much a need. And so when you were sharing that story, it just really resonated with me about what needs to be happening right now. Well, the media has made us look like such monsters as a people that they have us um, to where we don't like each other, where we're scared of each other. We don't we won't talk to the kids that come down the sidewalk towards us. We we step around them or across the street. That was one of the first things we said in circle was we were, we were gonna stop doing that. We were gonna speak to our kids. One of the other things we did was we invited the police in. We um, asked for the juvenile lockup to bring the kids every Monday to have a home cooked meal and, uh, and to sit and talk with us. Later, we have, we have a contract with Ramsey County to mentor 10 families, 10 kids on probation and their families. So when the pandemic came, we took, instead of taking the food that we would have cooked for Circle, we bought the food, packaged it up, and we would go to the houses of our mentees and they would have to come out to pick up the bag. We said our distance, but it gave us an opportunity to look them in the eye, because you know when you talk to them on the phone and you say, "Are you acting right? What's going on?" and all like that, and they. Uh, but when you look them in the eye, they can tell that you're. You you can tell whether or not they're not quite telling the truth, or there's something going on, and you can kind of nip it in the bud. Um, I'm proud to say that over the last year. I used to go to court every, every week or at least twice a month with the kids in these families. In the last year, nobody's been to court. Um, kids are getting jobs. The parents are getting jobs. All they needed was a cheerleader. And that's what we try to be to them. We need more cheerleaders. Long-term committed cheerleaders, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking oh, about the young on. people that have, during the pandemic, going back to Vanessa's question, like they've been in confinement during a pandemic. And so you actually are receiving the young people that have been in a lot of isolation without access to technology, without access to their families for a really long time. So for them to come out, and be able to connect with you through your diversion process and support, it's really powerful for our young people just to be able to see you, know that you're there waiting for them. That is incredible. I appreciate you. Yes, come out and see old Uncle Russ. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you probably give him that look too. I know that that look you might give him, ah, you ain't quite being quite honest with me. And they, and they get real. And 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 that's that's what's so important about having um, people from our communities who know us, who, who, you know, who, who know us, right? You know them well enough to be like, ah, no, no, tell me the truth now. 
And we appreciate you so much for that. Marika, were you going to ask a question before I jumped in with all my excitement? <laughs> we're, we're flowing. This is okay, cool. Um, okay. So you really spoke to the challenges of young people uh, or people in general coming out um, that have a criminal history. Um, what are some examples of ways you've seen lives changed by the humanization of folks with a criminal history? We can't see your point. I feel like Russell just answered some of that, right? Uh, <clears throat> how lives change through the humanization of, of somebody with a, with a criminal history. I feel like me as somebody who <clears throat> came out with a criminal history, I think Jason. So I think people who come out with a criminal history, it's up to us in a sense to beat down that stigma uh, by modeling, uh, by modeling citizenship and activism. I don't, I don't think, I, I feel like anybody who's been in that, in that dungeon has an obligation um, to to be an activist, and, and it, it 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 hurt. It pains me deeply when people are like, man, I just gotta come out and, and catch back. No, ain't no catching back up. It's like too much work to do. Um, and if the people before us would have did it, we we could destigmatize it. Uh, we need to point out all the everything about incarceration that is just about an economy and has nothing to do with public safety. Uh, and and quit calling it a system and say specific names. Talk about specific judges. Talk about specific lawyers that abandoned their clients. Uh, I mean, just a, it is a system, but we need to call out people specifically um, and stigmatize. And I don't want to swear on this, but I will have to swear on this. Stigmatize, stigmatize they monkey ass. Uh, Y'all can edit that out <laughs> if you feel that you need to, but it's, it's just at a point where. Uh, why, why, censorship here. I know, but but there's I just don't I just don't understand. So what do I, I've seen life change through humanization, just from what Russell just said, uh, what you guys pointed out, right? Just being somebody's cheerleader uh, and being there with them, being proud to be with them. Uh, it, it's amazing. We, I mean, we know even, even trauma, we know trauma, like developmental trauma is alleviated just by a concerned person being consistent in their life, right? Uh, and so we're talking about seeing somebody's life change from humanizing them. It just, it's all the time. It has nothing to do with even the incarceration aspect of it. It's, it's this type of thing that where David mentors me. I've been I've been going into the prison for 20 years to Stillwater and then a few of the others doing a monthly class and um, and I've been locked up for a few hours, but I've never spent the night in a facility. Um, so uh, he points out a lot of the places that I'm missing. And some, some, sometimes this has played well for me too, because I, I ask for things that uh, others wouldn't because they know how things are set up. When I do my group in the prison, I insist that it be multiracial. And everybody tells me, we don't do that in here. We, we don't eat together. We, you know, the blacks are here and the Indians over here. And I said, no, I got to have a mixed group and eventually one by one they would bring these folks together and um i wasn't quite sure why but there was a brother that had been in for 20 years and he came up to me and he said i've been locked up for 20 years and i've only spent my time with black muslims he said this has been so educational for me to hear other people and um, uh, I'm really excited because he's about to get out and he's been in for almost 30 years now. And, and that's, that's real life, right? Like I'm, I, in the, in the thing, I don't know if you see my little surprise face that that level of segregation is happening and, and, and being, um, I don't know what the word is, but that, you know, that, that the guards are, are kind of not necessarily promoting it, but saying that's just how things are done here. That's just so surprising. I, anyhow, that's what I, I want to know. It, 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 it promotes poverty, inequality, shame, uh, the culture of violence, isolation, violence, and then that's supposed to be a correction. Mm. Mm. Or is it? Well, right? Go ahead. 
Nope, you go ahead, Vanessa. I'm sorry. No, I, all I had to say, or is it? Is it supposed to be a correction? Is that their, you know, intention, right? But go ahead. What were you saying, David? But, but I, so that's the thing, like, this, like Minnesota Correctional Facility, they're all correctional facilities. There's nothing mm. correctional about it. Um, they're rotten and correctional to the core. And, even, and, and there's so many things, like when you talk about race, right? So everything gets siloed. Um, the TV room, you walk by TV room, there's a black TV room, there's a Mexican TV room, and there's a white TV room. Uh, and the same thing when you go into the chow hall, everything is siloed. When I left, so I, I spent my first 27 months in Sandstone and the next 18 months at a federal prison camp, which is more luxury like, because um, initially it was for politicians and, and people, you know, white collar, tax fraud stuff before the drug war. Uh, and so, but I was, Prior to me going to prison, like in 2014, me and two professors um, started planning the, what became the inaugural understanding and responding to mass incarceration. And so I did the first one and the next two before I turned myself in. So I went into prison with a pen and a pad and everything I did was uh, intentional and strategic. Uh, and so one thing I want to point out, so I worked in both places. I, was, I ran the career resource centers. So I was privy to paperwork that a lot of people didn't have. And so the way the BOP, this is a federal, this is not even though they were in, they were in Minnesota, they're federal prisons, but the Bureau of Prisons nationwide went on a, on a quarantine schedule that started April 1st at midnight. And the quarantine schedule was supposed to last for 14 days. And you, now you isolate units so we can't interact with people. So if there was a COVID breakout, it would stay, be confined in one unit. So on April 1st, I can tell you, I have, I have two different reports. So one is 472 population, the other one has a population of 469, but it was one of the two uh, on April 1st. And so the administrators of every prison were to identify people who were in close proximity to release, uh, had underlying conditions, or were over 65 years old, right? People who would succumb to the worst COVID had to offer. But they had to serve at least at 75% of the time. And so, so you had to identify those people in the first 14 days, and on the 15th of April, start releasing people to thin out the prisons for social distancing. <clears throat> and on uh, so my release date was May 18th, or at least my home confinement date was May 18th. So I'm close to proximity to release, but I didn't get, I didn't get con considered. Um, and what they did, so when I left on May 18th, the population, I bought the population down from 401 to 400. And I can tell you with absolute certainty, not a single black person got out on COVID relief. Uh, there was white young dudes, 37, 38 years old, that served about a year. Um, they weren't near their, their three, their 75% mark, but they were released. Um, there was a, a, a black man, Walter Hall, and I say his name because he gives me permission to say his name. Uh, he was, he had been locked up 18 years at two years ago, so he's well over the 75% mark. He was 65 years old, so he had that. He had high blood pressure, diabetes, and he had a real strange blood condition that, that caused him to produce, produce an abundance of red blood cells. So he had all kinds of conditions. Um, they wouldn't release him. When I tell you they didn't release, and, and, and prisons do play this game. If you were, if you go to Google and put in like uh, your prison population by race, then you it'll pull up and it'll show you by race. White, it looks like whites dominant because what's not in what's not included here, whites, Asian Pacific Islanders, Indians, blacks, and that's it. They don't have anything Mexican or Latin listed. They list them as white. But if you go to the BOP employee side, then you'll see a breakdown where they include Mexicans. And so they do that to give whites more numbers and mexicans benefit from that in prison uh it's crazy there's six percent of the of the population in minnesota black black male so we, and half of those are going to be uh juvenile so that's really three percent uh are black men and today 50 percent of stillwater is black men and you can imagine the other prisons will be the same. And I, I don't know if, if, if you're aware, but uh, in my last time I was in the prison and I, I was doing a group, um, there was a trans woman, black, that showed up in the group. And um, if you don't, if you haven't had all the necessary operations then you're considered, you're still considered a guy and um, when she walked into the room, the group went to the other side of the room and um, she was very uncomfortable. I had her come sit at my table and um, 
in the end, she was com uncomfortable and she left and I explained. But it seems, it's, it, it seems to me that there are spaces um, where they could have set this person down without throwing her into a situation like that. There's just, it, there's just no equality. Hmm. Hmm. Well, if you all don't mind, if I just do a slight segue, and, and you kind of talked about um, some of your inspiration already, um, but I want to know if there's some specific names um, of people who were your inspirations while you were growing up that modeled for you the activism that you live out every day. And if we could start with Russ, that would be great. Um. I think this is where I may have gotten the circle process too, but my mother uh, would um, came from a little town in Kansas called Fort Scott. And uh, she shows up like a queen. The way she carried herself, the way she um, worked with people, the way she uh, she never allowed us to talk badly about anyone about once every couple two or three months she would bring somebody that was hungry to our dinner table on a Sunday and they might be they were generally a different from a different ethnic group each time they came and I mean white folks that were down on their luck and she would always tell us that it was an opportunity to practice our manners. And, uh, and she would let us know that anyone could be down on their luck. There was a lady that um, worked the street and my sister and I um, giggled about it uh, one day when she was coming up the street. And it was uh, the first time I thought our mother was gonna beat us down with a stick and she would go into her closet and get a dress. The woman happened to have the same name as she did, Lillian. And she would take that outfit and wrap it up in the beautiful tissue and stick it in a bag where it would be a lovely gift and take it. There was a woman that we used to throw rocks at the kids coming home from school. She was we, was a crazy old lady. And my sister and I, again, made a chuckle because my mother drove past her. Uh, and my mother hit the brakes and asked that woman, would she like a ride? We were terrified. Um, so she had worked many places and had been let go, last hired, first fired. And uh, one day she came home and she made dinner and she left out of there and went and had a meeting with some people in the neighborhood and started an organization called Target Area A. It was first North Central Voters League, then Target Area A, which later became Ramsey Action Program and is now cash. And uh, before she died doing that job, she had a staff of seven women from different ethnic groups. And she had one man that was her secretary. And you'd come in, she'd say, Bob, would you get us some coffee? So she was kind of my shiro. And um, she taught us all how we needed to help people anyway. So for myself, pretty much the same situation, right? It's mom first. Like my mom was a <clears throat> little short, five foot, four inch white woman from a small town in Minnesota called Glenwood. My dad was a six, six dark black man from Cope, Illinois. Uh, and they got married in April of 1956. Um, so they had to advocate for themselves because just, the, I mean, they, they weren't really allowed to love each other by society standards back then. Um, and so, and then as a young person, my dad died of cancer when I was 10, but my mother was involved in a group called Sikkim. And I always, like when I look at the Lutheran church, the Lutheran church is like an all white church, right? But Sikkim stood for Conference on Inner City Ministries and it was funded by the Lutheran church and it consisted of Puerto Ricans from the South Bronx, natives from all over the place. Like I remember 
I remember being about five or six years old and in the airport when Paul and Corolla Bow and, and, and uh, uh, Clyde Bellacourt and Vernon Bellacourt came back from Wounded Knee. I, remember, I mean, my mom was always an activist. I, I, probably up until we just cleaned out her house about six years ago, it was boxes of stickers that said, why I wounded me, you know, from 72, 73. Uh, so my mother was my, was my first role model in activism and never stopped. There was times when I was probably between the time I was 12 and 14 years old, where it was people living in my house that had a bedroom when I didn't, and it used to drive me crazy. But I learned later in life um, how my mom was a, was a radical advocate for, uh, for people. And as a white woman, she could, she could check white people on behalf of black people. Uh, and she did so frequently. So she was my, she was my first role model. But I had, I had quite a few of them. Uh, I had quite a few role models who, who I seen advocating and being activism, wild and radical. So. But, what, what's really interesting in your descriptions is they both, both your role models grounded you in the humanity of people. And that's that that's that goes to that other question of, you know, in general, how we see each other's humanity. That's a really powerful grounding to start <laughs> your life, whether your path is being a full-time activist or as you're able. So I think that that our mothers are often our role models and for that. And so you are just a reflection of our community and how that works. Um, I do have uh, another question for you because you all sound like you out there, you doing this work. And it's a lot and it's constant and it's a barrage of things coming at you. So how do you actually balance your obligation to the community um, with your obligation to take care of yourself? Like, how are you all doing? So, you know, it's, okay, so first of all, it's really, really hard. Uh, the, the whole thing about self-care it's a crazy term because I think it, there's a community care. I think we oftentimes hear people say, God, I'll never give you more than you can handle. And, and I would say, no, I think God purposely gives you more than you can handle so you can lean on your brother and sister in Christ to get stuff done. Uh, so obligation to ourselves, I don't think I could, I can't be at peace when, when I see other people at struggle. So for me, that, that's how I balance it. It's just, I, I'm just not at peace until, um, I think Kevin Reese has something until we are all free. It's like until we are like comfortable. So for me, it, it's stressful. I'm not gonna say it's, it's stressful. Like I might get up early in the morning before everybody else in journal or, or um, look forward to getting out on that boat when nobody's around and just being out there in the middle of nowhere by myself. But uh, it's not, uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, the old thing, he ain't heavy as my brother. That's what it is. It's, it's not, there's not time for self-care, self-care. In this, I'm, for some people, self-care is necessary. For me, self-care is selfish, selfish. So that's how I balance it. And, and we still hope you're getting, eating meals, you know, and taking walks. And yes, we understand that self-care is community care. And a part of our tradition in our community is we burn ourselves out so we can't be useful to each other. So I hear you and I asked you to make sure that you do take moments for yourself where you just breathe. Cause you're carrying a lot. What about you, Russell? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you forget, you forget. And um, because things are coming at you all the time, but I, I think then you, um, uh, when things are going well, it kind of feels like you're winning and that's, uh, um, and that feels good. So. I do get out and get out and walk because that's really important for me. But it, what it, what happened is now we have a new project called Walk in the Park because I need to take them kids and be able to talk to them. So I take them down by the park because they can't walk around the city or they'll get shot. So we go down by the river and, um, and I teach them about, that's a woodpecker. Uh, do you see the eagles? There's the deer. And um, and I get my walk in. Uh, the and that's community. <laughs> that's yeah. community. Yeah, and that, and the one the thing that I miss probably is not getting to hug my grandkids more. And that's um, and I'm working on that all the time. 
that is a good work in progress. And, and David says, you know, working work into your self care. So it's a, it's a balance of, I can enjoy this with other young people because nature is an incredible way to just kind of let some of the, the toxicity that we carry go. So I appreciate all the work that you all are putting in. Vanessa, what, what, are, mm -hmm. you, what are you thinking about right now? Abolition. <laughs> abolition. You know, abolition and defunding or reconstructing the police is at the forefront of the conversation around policing today. And in a world weighing out the benefits and dangers of police interactions, what are some things that stand out to you about things that need to change? And, and you said a little bit of something, uh, shoot, not a little bit, a lot of it, <laughs> David. So if we can kick it off with Russ at this time and, and you can piggyback, that would be greatly appreciated. But yeah, can you answer that question for us? Well, I, I mentioned <laughs> at the beginning, um, the, as we had the circle going, every from the very first meeting, I said, we need to have police in on the conversations. People would get upset. They were tears. Uh, they didn't want the police to come in that room. But after 25 weeks of asking, they said, okay, let the police in. The police came in, the chief in, and the deputy chief and the gang commander and the juvenile commander and the uh, homicide commander and they all came in in their dress blues and um, and they listened to what the guidelines of the conversation were and followed through. And the people in there told their stories of the things that had happened to them that they felt that, like the police had wronged them. And you know that those police passed out their business cards. They, they went and they straightened out all the messes that these people had. My, they gave my grandson's mother a business card and she hadn't told me, but when the police came to her house looking for somebody, she would just open up the door and let them in and they would walk over her shoes or clothes and make a general mess. I don't know why she didn't tell me these type of things were happening. When they came to her house the next time, she handed them her business card or she took her his business card, called him, he got on the phone and told them never go to her house again and never go to anyone's house at that time of night. It changed her. Um, so the police were, were a presence in the circle for years. And then one police officer came in and retired police officer, Melvin Carter, made a comment that people that took uh, other people's guns and used them, uh, did that because they had small genitals. This one cop went back and told them at roll, roll call that it was said that the police had small genitals and that's why they used their guns. The Federation said, got on the chief and told him, why are you sending those police into a hostile area and the police have not been back. Um, even after I explained and explained. So it's, uh, it was an excellent opportunity for five years where there would be 10 police officers and 10 people from the community that would go out to Washington DC and spend time together just to build relationships. It was wonderful to be able to run into police that you didn't feel like you had to be afraid of. Um, so I don't know if I'm really answering that question, but I believe in defunding and rebuilding uh, uh, the organization that uh, where you can create a job description that you need them to do since we are paying for them. And, um, and make sure that they are from your community. And I wanna say that this year and last year, the officer of the year were police officers in my community that live in my community. Um, when they come around, when they pull up by the house, the neighbors come out and say hi. 
even their pets want a pet from Officer Brown. Um, so I think that, yeah, I believe that it needs to be defunded and, um, and rebuilt. Um, I think a lot of the officers come from a military background and I think that's the problem with them being able to kill us and not, uh, and not have their souls stirred from doing it. So the, the, the police that Russell just described, I'm familiar with police like that too. And I feel like those people, I'm not even calling police, those people uh, have a place in the next generation of whatever it is besides outside of police. Um, but we need to even quit calling them police because that's gonna bring in the element of the past. So when I think about this whole question, I can tell you this here in, in, in the summer of 2016, uh, a young man I used to mentor asked me to pull over to his house or he lived in a condo. He said, pull over in this parking lot and wait for me to come out of the garage. He said, and now I want you to ride with me to the dealership to pick up my other car. So I parked, went by the garage and waited. Older white guy came walking by with his dog. And outside of it being like two o'clock on a sunny weekend day, it would look suspicious me hanging by this, where this underground parking comes up. So I just walked over to the man and started talking to him. Uh, told him who I was waiting on, and I ended up walking with him all the way to the front of the building, which is about a half a block. It was a real large complex, about a half a block. Got to the end and put my hand out to introduce myself. I said, David Starks, and he put his hand out and introduced himself. As soon as he said his name, was like, then it hit me why he looked so familiar. And I said, I remember you, you were a park police. And I call it a park police the 8th precinct. I said, well, you were a park police and you drove a cream. You're the only park police I know that drove on my car with a cream marquee. He said, well, how do you know that? How do you remember that? And I said, because you took my moped from me one day when I was 15 years old. And uh, we talked for a minute and he just, then he jumped out and he, it was, this was after Philando Castillo. And he, and he took a step and said something that he, that he couldn't step back from, like forgetting he was a police or forgetting I was black. And he just said, he said, well, I'll let you know just to tell you about some of the biases in the police department. He started rocking on his heels and he said, <clears throat> when those things were getting popular and you guys started getting your hands on them, we had a saying in the police department that said, a black kid on a moped, that constitutes probable cause. And I just stared at him with a blank face. <clears throat> and he started explaining what probable I said, I know what it means. I said, it wasn't funny then. It's not funny today. Uh, <clears throat> but then I tried to lighten the mood. I told him, I said, you know, you look for me. I, and I said, you look good, good to see you. I told him, I said, see Mr. Noble the other day. He looked good too. And then he asked me how, I don't want to go down that long hole, but he asked me how I knew this other person who worked in the same precinct as him in the Park Police Precinct. Um, and told me why he hadn't spoke to him in 30 years. Uh, and it came down because this police officer that I was talking to had shot a black kid in the back. Um, and this police pulled him from a job. So for me, when I look at, the, especially today, the makeup of police, when I look at uh, the Andover, Minnesota has the highest percentage of, of Minneapolis police. And like, when have y'all ever cared? to come into the city for anything other than to kidnap black bodies. Um, so I have, I don't, I don't like, I, like Madeira Arredondo is a fantastic person. I remember in high school, in junior high, amazing, fantastic person. I think he has a place in whatever the next thing outside of police is to lead public safety. It just shouldn't be police and anything similar to police. That's, I, I just, you know, there's an old 1769 doctrine that says better than 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person get convicted. So all those great police don't mean nothing if it takes, it just takes one bad apple. We know there's not a bad apple, it's a rotten tree everywhere from the core to the roots to everything. Uh, it's especially when it took so much work for black people to even get into a police department. Uh, it's, I, I don't know, it's just... I, I love I love certain humans that are police. Can't stand police. I want to say that when I was eight years old, and we uh, before we we lived in where Rondo, where ninety four is, and uh, we moved further up towards Selby. Back in the day, and I'm going to age myself. Back in the day when Selby was white, and my mother would leave for work, and she would look at me and she'd say, "You stay in the yard." or stay on the block, because she knew I was going to be moving. Um, 
and then she'd say, stay off of Selby. And I went up on Selby and I was eight years old and a police car pulled up and told me to put my hands up against the wall. And I was so thin, they couldn't get but a finger or two in my pocket to check my pocket. And uh, I couldn't go back and tell my mother because she had told me to stay off of Selby. But that was my first time. And there would be many other times that the police would stop me. And uh, it was about 10 years ago and I was still vice president of this other organization. I was suited and booted and had uh, come out of the barbershop with a fresh cut. I thought uh, uh, the gray hairs were some type of protection and the um, six squad cars came up, three on one side of me, three on the other, and they blocked off first and first and and first Avenue and Nicollet off of 32nd and uh, I was about to pull off and they pulled shotguns out and uh, then I was made to get out of the car and lean me over and put the handcuff on me. By the time a crowd had gathered and were screaming and it was this old cop that was teaching these other young white cops how to handle this black man. And it was it was became very obvious when the crowd got big enough that he took the handcuff off of me and told me to get. And that was a Friday. On that Monday, I called to get a record of that, and they said they didn't have any record. I said there's 12 people with shotguns on me, and there's no record. And later they would come back and say. Uh, they were looking for a suspicious character. I mean, what both of you are sharing about is not unusual. This is not an outlier story. I like literally we could do activism and black men being pulled over by the police. <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is a generational story that, yes, as we're talking about abolition and defunding or restructuring, we need to begin with the stories and the impact of what this really has done to our, our community. Um, and speaking of that, because we know so many young people are having those type of interactions, how can we actually reach young people before those first interactions actually in the criminal justice system? And I know, David, you don't want us to call it system, you want us to call out particulars, but in that whole kind of mechanism. Um, in your experience, what kind of opportunities help you help to guide youth towards uh, a deepened and healthy relationship with their community? Like y'all are doing this work. Tell us about it. We need we need the resources. Um, when I was 20 years old and just coming from college, um, the community center that's right up by the church that welcomed me um, in said they had six kids that were uh, a real problem in the community. And if I could keep them out of trouble for a week, I had a job. I took those kids and I put them in the car. I had six um, fishing poles, actually seven. I got some bologna and some crackers and I took them to the lake and we fished every evening until it got dark and then I took them home. So I got the job. When they found the funds to do, uh, so we could take uh, camp the next year, I made them my junior counselors. And then uh, there was, I came up with a project called the JOY program, Job Opportunities for Youth and the city funded it and, and gave, money to each of the rec centers to hire the kids in the neighborhood to give them jobs. And those kids that I had fit into that. And, you know, I still see them. I still see them. Um, so it, it would take resources. David, what would you say? It'd take a lot of people too. And so I agree with both of those parts. So a couple of things happened. I'll go back to like back to 2016 again. Is I went to a conference, st Statistics to Solutions, 
and one of the panelists was a judge, and I can't think of the judge's name, and before I knew he was a judge, he said something. He said, he said in 2002, the state of Minnesota spent $6.3 million on addiction and violence prevention. And in 2016, they were spending 634,000. So exactly a tenth of what they were spending 14 years prior. 2016 was also the year that Ramsey County and Hennepin County <clears throat> were trying to build a 163 bed joint juvenile detention center. Uh, and I talked about that, Russell, <clears throat> if you remember that JDA interview, that it was a setup, right? You reduced, you defunded things that would prevent substance abuse and prevention from communities by, you, you, you're spending a tenth of what you're spending 14 years earlier, and now you want to invest that money into a, a joint juvenile detention center a year after newspaper articles were both saying Hennepin County or Glen Lake and, and, and Ramsey County JDC were so lived, the, the population was so small they had closed the pod. So now you want to invest in something to build it back up. In a conversation with a commissioner about it, the commissioner said, well, you guys don't understand, we're getting pressure from building unions. And they said, don't get it wrong. If you can find something else for us to build, we'll build it. We can't have them out of work. Well, you can't have young people out of work either. And at that same JDI meeting, when they were talking about that joint juvenile detention center, they were passing around a PowerPoint that said it will, <clears throat> having this joint juvenile detention center will uh, create jobs. Let's skip those jobs. Let's create jobs. And then like you said, resources for young people. That's what it was like for me. And I think, I think exposure to more than what these racist social architects ever wanted inner city black men to see also changes a young person's motivation. So, uh, Yes, we need to be big about community, but we need to show them what other communities look like. Uh, if, you, you, if you go out to Eden Prairie and walk into a Culver's or a Devonis, you're going to see a wall full of sports teams that those restaurants invest in. That's part of the community relations. We don't have a community relations with business. We just let business come and extract our money. We don't, we don't form a community relations committee to make them invest back into the community that they're sucking money out of. Yeah, that 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 is a powerful statement. And I think about in COVID, how many uh, young people are unemployed and how even in that unemployment, they didn't want to provide unemployment resources. And so I think what Wessel and David, you were both speaking to is that there needs to be a, a responsive level that meets people where they are and allows those resources to touch the people who are in direct relationship. So I, I, I yes, yes, and <laughs> um, I also um, want to point out to your point, David, is even after the um, the murder of George Floyd, the subsequent uprising, we had corporations committing billions of dollars to racial justice, racial equity, and to date, it's a year later, and of those. 62 billion or 500 billion dollars they've most corporations have only committed to 50 million from the billions that are committed so when you're talking about how people are are investing their money it also demonstrates where their priorities are so yes yes and yes um, y'all preaching today y'all preaching today <laughs> yes I didn't mean to interrupt you, Marika. Were you going to say something before we go into the game? No, we were going to do the game. So one of the things that we like to do is be playful a little bit, lighten, lighten the conversation. And so we play a word association game. Uh, we say a word and you share with us the first word or thought that pops into your mind. And so I'll read the first word, you'll respond. Vanessa will read the second word, you'll respond and we'll see where it goes, okay? You got the rules, you're good? We'll, we'll see how it goes. All right. The first word that I want you to respond to is justice. Hilarious. Balance. Next word is joy. Community. Happiness. And liberation. Joy. I'm not sure how to even uh, begin. Again, equality. What about protest? Obligation. Mm 
important. Freedom. Time. I don't know what to say to that. Um, freedom might be the one. I got interrupt. Freedom might be like a one-word oxymoron in America. Hmm. You're not still waiting for me, are you? Yeah. Say illusion. Say anything. Uh, <laughs> say a dream. Call it a dream. It's a dream. Uh, the next word is abolition. Absolutely. I, 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 we, we need abolitionists. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank y'all for, for indulging in that game with us. I know it's challenging, but aren't all games kind of challenging? That's what makes them fun. <laughs> I like how somebody's background has bing as each... <laughs> As each of the, the things went on, I thought that was very timely. Um, one of the last questions we had was, uh, what words of advice would you give someone who is having their first interactions with the criminal justice system? What should they know? What should they expect? And what do you hope for them? So for me, I, I, when they read you your rights, or if they don't read your rights, don't say a thing. Like one thing about it, when they say like you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you. They don't say anything you say might be used against you. If we can, you know, if we can fit it. No, they say can and will. Everything. Listen, they're telling you right there. Everything you say is going to be used to strip you of your freedom. It's going to be used, but not like all the stuff the police say afterwards. Come on, help yourself out. There's no such thing as helping yourself out. Anything you say can and will be used against you. And we hear it so much, it's almost like when people say love so much, it just loses a meaning. It, that statement le never loses its meaning. So if you have interaction with the criminal justice system, the first word out of your mouth is, I'm speaking to a lawyer. By law, they are required to stop talking to you so you can't say anything to fuck yourself up. The first thing they are, say, say you want to speak to your lawyer and they are required by law to stop talking to you so you cannot say anything that can be used against you. Your silence cannot be used against you. Perfect for the edit. I hope I fixed that. I think that's definitely it. And I think that uh, the only other thing I would say is that you just put all your energy into figuring out how to back up out of it. Um, yeah, and look for people like you <laughs> to help them navigate that process. So we have one last question for you, our remarkable guests. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This is a drop the mic question. So you gotta answer it and drop the mic, okay? The question for you that I want you to answer is, in my lifetime, I. Why don't we start with Russell? In my lifetime, I would like, uh, I would like to, when I get that opportunity to, to sit back in that easy chair and kind of let things go and, and leave it to those that, have the energy to go at it as as I tried to. Uh, I'd like to be able to look back and and see see some of the changes and see um, see things happen that I would I didn't see as I came along. In my lifetime, I hope to experience a world uh, that I believe existed before I interacted with it outside of my community um, and in my lifetime, I hope to see young men realize their potential uh, before they get disqualified from exercising it by the so-called system of justice. Well, y'all heard it here first. Activism and mass incarceration it's more than an episode. It's an ongoing conversation that we need to have with ourselves, with our families, our community. And we thank you for helping us take that step into what life is like and what activism can be um, as we work on freeing ourselves from the system. Vanessa, do you have any last words other than thanking you, thanking our guests today and checking in with them? 
No, I just want to say I appreciate you all coming on here with us. This is one um, one of our longest but necessary um, podcasts, and I appreciate you sharing your insight. And, and David, I appreciate that I know that you are working in the background because your hotline keeps on blinging. I love it. <laughs> I hear bling. I know where your hotline blinging. <laughs> Uh, again, thank you guys so much for joining us on here thank and continuing that great work. Until next time, this has been Activism and You. Today's episode was produced by the team at Activism and, made possible through a grant from the National Science Foundation. This has been a Science production.